Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you all here on a nice summer Sunday afternoon. I was expecting about 10 people here today, so it's, it's nice to have you. Neil is away. Pastor Neil, if you're a first-time guest this morning, our pastor is away on a um, young couple's retreat with the melting pot, and so he's in Lake Havasu. And um, so he asked me to preach today. I said, sure, I'd love to. Um, and I'm a teacher. Well, actually, now I'm a principal. But I love children, and so before the children are dismissed, I want all the children to come on down, and I have an object lesson I'd like to do with you this morning. So all the children, you can just come down and sit on the first two pews right here. How many of you know what you want to do in 20 years? That's what I thought. Oh, do you really? I want to go into engineering. Engineering. Outstanding. That is great. That is great. Um, How many of you have had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich before? You've had. You've never had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Not really a fan of the jelly. Not really a fan of the peanut butter and butter. Peanut butter and honey. Okay, so you've had a sandwich with peanut butter. How many of you know how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Have any of you ever made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Several of you have. Well, um, I, I'm going to ask for a volunteer here in a second, but I actually want a teenage volunteer, which I don't know if you qualify for. Well, look over here. Here's Teenage Row. All right, Austin, come here. I'll use you at the end, okay? I have another object lesson at the end of my message, and I will call you up. I promise. I don't promise, but I'll try to remember Austin, have you ever made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich before? Yes. Yes, you have to hold that up. Yes. So you know how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Yes, my mom taught me. Your mom taught you. Way to go, Debbie. Okay. Well, would you mind making for us a peanut butter and jelly sandwich this morning? Yeah. You, uh, I can do that. You can do that? Okay. Actually, I'm going to make it, but I want you to describe to me step by step. You'll give me the instructions. And I'll make the sandwich based on your instructions. Can you do that? Yes, I can do that. Are you confident? No. No? That's good. Um, the next thing, I'm going to blindfold you. Okay. Okay? Because, um... Can you see? No, I can see nothing. Oh, thank you. All right. How many fingers am I holding up? Five. No, okay. I'm actually, because you're in high school and I know high schoolers like to cheat, I'm going to have you face this way. Okay? Just kidding, just kidding. All right, Austin. Um, no, you can just face that way. <laughs> I want you to describe for me step by step, and I'll just tell you, because you haven't seen it, I'll show the audience. I have the peanut butter. Okay. And actually, this is a brand new thing of peanut butter, so i got to take this little safety... Fresh. Is it smooth? It is smooth. Yes, it is. Okay. It's real peanut butter. That was the jelly. I got a loaf of uh, sandwich bread here. It's wheat. I have a spoon and a knife. Okay. A a spoon? A spoon and a knife, just in case. Okay. And I have a plate here. Okay, so I want you to describe to me. Step by step, and I'll follow your instructions exactly on right. how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. All right. 
Well, first we need to know, do you like the little one piece of bread in full and half, or do you like two pieces of bread and, and pile them on top of each other? You, I don't care. All right. You tell you, me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You're going to take out two pieces of wheat bread. Okay. You're going to face them upwards. Two pieces of wheat bread? Yes. Okay. Face them upwards, which is the same thing either way, but... Okay. All right, you're going to take your knife. Okay. And you're going to open the peanut butter jar. Okay. You're going to dip the knife and scoop it like if it was a spoon. And you are going to spread it thoroughly on the left side. Of, on, the, on, the left, on the left piece of the two, two breads. If you have one on the right or one on the left, you have one on the left one. Okay, I'll just spread it on the left piece of bread then. There you go. All right. Okay. Yeah, that whole, completely... Yep. Smothered? It's completely smothered. Yep. <laughs> okay, here's what you do. Okay. You, you need to wipe off the, the peanut butter from, from the knife. Otherwise, the peanut butter will, it, it will get in the jelly. Okay. If it gets in the jelly, it's just... So wipe that off. Okay. Okay, you got that? Okay, now dip, dip, dip the knife inside the jelly and repeat the same process as the peanut butter. Repeat the same process. You have to explain to me what that means. Yeah, that means take the knife, dip it as if it was a spoon, and smother the right side. The right side, okay. Uh, you know. Okay. Okay, you have that done? Yeah. Okay, now you do. You're going to take the left, you're going to take the peanut butter one, pick it up. Okay. Got that. Now take the right one and, and collide. Make sure, make sure they're even and lined up and square-like. Okay, they're square-like now. All right. Okay. Now you got to cut off the crust. Ooh. <laughs> okay. Now that's how you. That's how you could do it. I prefer the little diagonal cut, so it's in halves. Okay. Got that. There you go. Sure. All right. You ready for your sandwich? No. No? I don't like, I don't, I'm not really a fan of jelly like that kid said. All right. Well, here you go. You can take your blindfold off. And here's your sandwich. I think you missed something. Audience, did I not follow his instructions? Did I do exactly what he said to? Here it is. I'm pretty sure I said two pieces of bread. This is two pieces of bread. You didn't say two slices of bread. You said two pieces of bread. Is this what you expected? No. No. All right, let's give Austin a hand. Let me set the mic down. I actually asked Austin before the service started if I can pick on him. He was, a, he was a brave volunteer. He had no idea what he was doing this morning. But this is a silly little illustration, kids, that, uh, you know, Austin had in his mind this beautiful peanut butter jelly sandwich. He knew exactly what he wanted it to look like. I can tell he'd been probably sleeping all night on this. You know, what's a beautiful peanut butter and jelly sandwich look like? Because he's made lots of them in his life. He said so. His mom taught him. Um, but that, did that come out anything like he expected it to? No. Sort of. Yeah, it had peanut butter, had jelly, had bread. 
Um, but my point this morning, boys and girls, is that sometimes as you guys grow up and go through life, you're going to have a vision of how you want things to be. Okay? And life's not always going to turn out the way we expect it to. Adults, can we attest to that? <laughs> sometimes things happen in life that we just don't expect. And life takes twists and turns. And sometimes our peanut butter and jelly sandwich ends up in a mess. And you know what God tells us to do? He says to trust in him and not lean on our own understanding. I think you guys have memorized probably Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Do you know it? Trust in the Lord with what? With all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. So if something happens in your life that you don't expect, didn't quite turn out the way you wanted it to, I want to give you one example in my own life. This happened several years ago. But it was a story in my life when I really had to trust in God. Um, it was right before my wedding. And I know Dan Neal, I'm not sure if he's in here, but he's getting married in a few weeks. Um, so I hope this doesn't happen to him. <laughs> but right before my wedding, three days before, my wife got in a real serious car accident. And she was taken to the hospital. And she was living at the time two hours away from me. And I got a phone call. Lloyd? Your wife's been in a serious car accident. She's in the hospital. Can you imagine what was going on in my mind? This is not what I envisioned for a nice, beautiful wedding. Um, and I remember praying. It was one of the first times I prayed because I believed in Jesus, and just like you guys believe in Jesus, but it was one of the first times where I had to say, I have to trust you, Lord. I have no idea what's going to happen here, but I trust you. Um, she ended up rolling down the aisle in a wheelchair. Um, that's not how we planned it out. That wasn't my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So I point that out to illustrate that there'll be some times in your life as you grow older that things won't happen just quite the way you expect and God asks us to trust in him. Okay? That's my lesson for you. I'm going to be talking to your moms and dads a little bit more about that later on. But hopefully you can grasp that point this morning. Let's give our kids a hand and you guys can go off to Children's Church. And I'm going to invite, um, I'm going to invite uh, Tom Bennett to come and lead us in our pastoral prayer this morning as I get cleaned up. I thought you did a pretty good job, Austin. Um, the pastoral prayer is where we, uh, we come before God and we ask um, for things. We uh, petition God because we believe that God's in control and, and we're not. And I invite you to uh, do that with me now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for children. We thank you that you entrust your people to care for them and to raise them. We pray that we will be wise and we'll be loving in the way that we do that. God, we pray for the world, especially uh, our servicemen, uh, Tom Wellborn, Jared Wright, and Corey Townsend as well, people who have served faithfully. We pray also for the places where they do serve. We pray that you'll bring peace. Um, that the world will, will change. And that good things will happen for the people of Afghanistan and Iraq. That your gospel light will shine and your justice will be brought to their lands. We pray for our missionary, Carafis, 
who's in the Middle East now. Lord, we pray that uh, her team is able to share the gospel, to bring the love and hope of Jesus Christ uh, to the Muslim people. We pray for Mike and Carrie Gibson in Haiti. We pray that uh, their ministry in the orphanage will go well, that their love will be made known, and ours by extension. And we pray for the sick, Lord. We remember Pam, who's been struggling with cancer for a long time. And God, we know that you can give her peace. We know that you can give her healing. And we ask for that. We ask that you would rid her of the things that have been tearing her down in her body. Father, we love you. We know that you answer our prayers. We know that you rule the world. And we look forward to the day when we will see it in its fullness. And you will set everything right. We pray, God, that as we give back to you, it will be a sign of worship. An action that demonstrates our acceptance of your kingship, of your lordship. All these things we lift to you in the name of Jesus who has gone before us and shown us the way, who has redeemed and saved us. Amen. Well, good morning again. As Pastor Neil would say, how y'all doing? Oh, come on, you can do better than that. How y'all doing? <laughs> there we go. Um, you know, Neil did ask me a, a few months ago if I'd, I'd be willing to preach today, and I said sure. Um, I was halfway tempted. I've preached here before, and how many of you were here the last time I preached? Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, I was halfway tempted to bring out one of my old messages, but I... I figured someone might call me on it, and I wanted to save myself the embarrassment. So I put some work in. In all seriousness, I have to say that in preparation for today's message, I've really gained a deeper uh, appreciation and um, respect and admiration, not only for God's Word, uh, but for Pastor Neil. I forgot how much time and energy goes into preparing a message. Um, and I have to say, as an elder and member of Coast Bible Church, that I'm honored to call Pastor uh, Neil my pastor. He does an exemplary job, week in and week out, of bringing God's truth to us. And um, I'm equally excited about what God is doing in and throughout the life of our church here. And I trust that you feel the same way. 
Well, this morning, um, I'm actually going to be continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and the ushers are passing, passing out some, some note sheets for us. This is a very popular passage. You're going to be very familiar with it. Um, it's the passage where Jesus teaches his disciples about his coming passion, um, what he's going to be experiencing on the cross and his resurrection. Um, it's also the passage where um, uh, the, the disciples are going to dispute among themselves who's the greatest. And then Jesus' uh, lesson with them that if you want to be great in my kingdom, you must be a servant uh, to all. And um, as we go through today's passage, I want you to focus on, or I want to point out, the great disconnect between what was on Jesus' mind and that of what was on the disciples' mind. Um, I also have five applications that I gleaned from my studies this last week. Um, And as we go through the passage, I want to share those five applications with you um, as to how we can apply them to our lives and how Christ would want us to think. I know most good preachers are only supposed to have three good points, but I'm not considering myself a good preacher today. Uh, So I'm going to have five, and you'll have to be patient with me. Um, So as we go through today's passage, I want you asking yourself, um, oops, um, oh, I skipped a page. See, I'm already messing up. Uh, as we go through today's passage, I want to focus on really capturing the moment. Um, I want you to feel the emotion of today's passion. I want you to really understand what was going on through the disciples' mind and what was going on with Jesus' mind. And maybe, just maybe, by the end of this message, if I've done my job, and I'll try, uh, we may have a deeper understanding of how Christ wants us to think, to act, and to live. So I've entitled my message this morning, So What's on Your Mind? Um, and as we go, like I've said, I want you to focus on this disconnect. Um, and uh, before we go on, why don't we just uh, stop, pause, and pray, and ask God to speak through me. And that will open our minds as we talk, uh, go through this passage of Scripture. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word that you've given to us, um, your truth. And Lord, as we work through this passage today, help us to understand what was on your mind and understand what was on the disciples' minds, Lord. And in doing so, Lord, teach us today how you want us to think and where our minds should be focused. Lord, speak through me. Um, help me to clearly communicate your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's open our Bibles and we'll just dig right in here. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. It's on your note sheet. It's on the screen behind me. Um, Mark 9, verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. When he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me. As a way of introduction to this passage, I want to kind of put it in a little bit of context, because I think it will really help us understand um, as we go through it. 
Uh, this particular passage marks the beginning of Jesus' final road to Jerusalem. You see, um, everywhere he goes from here on out will be his last visit. Uh, it's kind of, in a, in a sense, his farewell, farewell tour, except he's kind of the only one that realizes it at this point. Um, I want to show on the map behind me kind of where we've been and where we're going. Um, it might be kind of hard to see, but right now we're in verse 30. It says he, he passed through Galilee. Um, he, or he departed from there and passed through Galilee. The there there is up to the top in the north, Caesarea Philippi. That's where we've spent the last few weeks studying. That's where the, Mount, the, the, um, the transfiguration took place. That's where the uh, healing of the demon-possessed boy uh, took place. And so they've left there. They've come down to Capernaum where they'll spend one day. Uh, Capernaum was Jesus' home base, if you will, during his three-year ministry. Um, that's where he called home. And everywhere you read, when they went to the home, it was most likely, most scholars believe, Peter's house. And this time when they passed through, on our passage today, they spend one day there. And it's not a public um, uh, time for Jesus. It's more of a private time where he's going to be with his disciples, teaching them about what's, what's going to happen. Uh, when we get down into chapter 10, the next chapter, they, he, he's down and going through Ju- uh, the area of Judea, down through Jericho. And by the time we get to... Um, Chapter 10, verse 32, we see that he's on the road to Jerusalem. And by the time we get to chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, um, that's the triumphal entry. And within a week, he'll be on the cross. I just point all this out to emphasize the point that within just a few weeks, just a few weeks, Jesus is going to be on the cross. Um, Not months away, not years away. We're talking just a matter of two, maybe three weeks from this passage today. Um, In just a few weeks... Christ is going to be experiencing his passion, his purpose, his mission. He's about to accomplish what he came here to earth for. He's just a few weeks away from saying, it is finished. And friends, I want to um, tell you this morning that that's what's on Jesus' mind. As we go through today's passage, this is what is on the uh, forefront of his mind. And every day that this reality gets closer, the more intense his passion is going to become. So let's read verse 30 again. It says, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. So Jesus had just spent the last three years ministering in and around Galilee. When it comes to verse 30, this will be his last time. In fact, it says he did not want anyone to know it. It is clear that his public ministry had ended in Galilee, and at this time would be focusing on teaching and preparing his disciples for what would soon come. So he taught his disciples in verse 31 and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. This is the second time that we see Jesus teaching his disciples about his coming death and resurrection. The first time was back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, Both of these occurrences or, or, or teaching lessons are very similar to each other, except this is the first time that Jesus uses the phrase I want to spend some time on. He says that the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. Um, in my study these last few weeks, uh, I initially thought that this was just referring to Judas. After all, Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus um, and hand him over to the authorities. But if you take a closer look, um, you'll notice that this phrase does not state the Son of Man will be betrayed, although that's true. Instead, it states the Son of Man is being betrayed. This has the connotation that the betrayal is happening right now, that Jesus is actually in the moment of betrayal. Um, So again, the question arises in this particular text, who is doing the betraying? So I want to spend a few minutes exploring this point. Uh, The actual verb here 
is, for the phrase is being betrayed is this big word I won't be able to pronounce, uh, but it's paradidotia, which literally means to be delivered up or to be handed over. So another way to read this passage would be the Son of Man is at this moment being delivered up into the hands of men. In fact, I don't know if any of you have an old King James Version Bible with you today, but that's the phrase they actually use, um, delivered up, which I believe is a better translation of this text. It doesn't make sense that this particular text refers to Judas, since Satan hasn't even put it in his mind to betray him yet. So if it's not Judas, who is doing the delivering up here? Um, I'd like to look at another passage that might give us some insight, and that's Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. This phrase, delivering him up, is the same verb, paradetotia, used for is being betrayed in our text today. It seems evident in this passage that God himself is delivering up Christ into the hands of men. What a powerful thought. I really like what one commentator wrote. Since the delivering up of Jesus was part of God's plan for the world's redemption, if this is what the verb means, then the plan on the word son of man, men, is no doubt deliberate. In a fallen world, men had become so hostile to God that when, at the culmination of his plans for their salvation, he sent to them the man, their savior and ultimate model, and they regarded him as their worst enemy. Men and the son of man stood on opposite sides in God's eschatological battle against the powers of evil. Friends, there's no doubt in my mind that God the Father is allowing his son to be delivered up into the hands of men. For this is what he came to do. Christ is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. But why is Jesus spending so much time teaching his disciples these things? This is at least the second time that's recorded in Scripture that he's taught his disciples about his, his pending death. I'd like to suggest to you this morning three reasons why. Um, it's not on your note sheet. But first, Jesus is teaching them these things because that's what's on his mind. That's what's at the forefront of Christ's mind. I don't know about you, but when you talk with your friends and your family and those who are close to you, don't you talk about what's on your mind? Um, the last few weeks, I've been talking about Palm Springs. Um, I'm actually leaving right after church. So if my message isn't good, I'm out of here. <laughs> um, and I've been talking about this message. Um, I've been anticipating it. Uh, that's what's been on my mind. Jesus is teaching his disciples these things because that's what he's in the moment. Secondly, he's preparing them for what is about to happen so that when it does happen, they can look back and remember these things that Jesus spoke. Jesus knows the disciples are scared. He knows that when they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, they're all going to scatter and flee for their lives. Um, And he's preparing them for what's about to happen. Thirdly, he's also teaching these things because he knows what's on their minds. In just a minute, we'll discover what's on their minds, and we'll be able to start seeing this great disconnect between what's on uh, Jesus' mind and that of his disciples. Yet even as he's teaching them these things about his his passion, we read that the disciples not only didn't understand, um, but they were afraid to ask him about it. And I was scratching my head wondering why. See, Jesus has been teaching his disciples for the past three years. He's been doing miracles and teaching parables and... um, and many of these lessons have been hard to understand. And we find throughout Scripture that, um, you know, many times after he teaches the crowds, they go back to the house, and what do the disciples do? Teach it. That was a hard saying. Explain it to us. Teach me. And so hard lessons aren't, aren't new for the disciples, but this is the first time we see in Scripture the disciples were afraid to ask him. Um, 
So not only do they not understand, but they're afraid to ask him what he means. I'd like to read to you this morning the Gospel of Luke's account of the same passage. Um, I think in doing so, it'll hint at maybe some of the reasons why the disciples didn't understand. Um, and we'll get a fuller picture of the emotion of the moment. Um, Luke writes this in chapter 9. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at all these things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed uh, into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Luke notes that the disciples had just been marveling about the majesty of God. Jesus had just healed a demon-possessed boy, something that the disciples couldn't do. Um, even after several tries. That's what Neil preached on last week. Jesus had just come down off the mount, mountain with Peter, James, and John where they had witnessed the transfiguration. I mean, they had just seen Moses and Elijah. They were ready to set up tabernacles to usher in his kingdom. Um, bottom line is, at this moment, the disciples were pumped up. They were on top of the world. They were ready to usher in the messianic kingdom. I mean, it doesn't get any better than this, right? Well, Jesus was about to burst their bubble. Uh, Notice that Luke points out, while they were still marveling, Jesus taught them these things. Um, Jesus included a few other phrases in Luke. He said, let these words sink down into your ears. In other words, disciples, listen to me. Pay attention. Understand. The fact is, they didn't understand. Luke also adds, it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it. The disciples just could not put it together. When we add in Matthew's account of this passage... um, After Jesus taught the disciples these things, we noticed that the disciples were exceedingly sorrowful. From marvel to extreme sorrow, talk about an emotional roller coaster. The disciples were confused, to say the least. How can Christ be talking about dying when he's supposed to be establishing the messianic kingdom? See, this didn't fit their worldview. This didn't line up with their understanding of how things were supposed to be going. And not only did they not understand, but they were afraid to ask. Why are the disciples afraid to ask? One reason might be because of um, the response Jesus gave to them after the first time he talked about his death back in Mark chapter 8. So let's look real quick at Mark chapter 8, verse 31 to 33. It says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan. For you are, not, you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. See, after Jesus teaching them, notice what Peter does. Jesus, he pulls Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him. He says, you're not going to die, Master. I'm not going to let that happen. And remember what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane? What does Peter do? Cuts off Malchus's ear in defense of his master. Peter's going to take things into his own hands. But what does Jesus do to Peter? It's most striking. He looks at the disciples and rebukes Peter openly. He says, get behind me, Saint, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, and I would argue the other disciples, were living with the mind of men. And one reason they were afraid to ask Jesus in our text today is because they didn't want to get rebuked again by Jesus. Um, In addition, I think the disciples didn't want to come to or deal with the fact that their their teacher would die. Obviously, there's a great disconnect between what was on Jesus' mind and the mind of his disciples. Which brings me to my first point this morning. So, what's on your mind? The mind of God or the mind of men? You see, Peter thought he was doing the right thing. When in fact he had his own will in mind. 
He was not going to let his teacher die. Sometimes I think we too take things in our own hands. Um, I know I do. We lean on our own understanding instead of trusting in Christ. Um, We take things into our own hands without considering God's will. So again, my first question to you this morning is, right now, are you living with the mind of God or the mind of men? You see, there was a real disconnect between Jesus' and the disciples' minds at this time. They weren't seeing eye to eye. Uh, This disconnect between Jesus and the disciples becomes most evident uh, by what happens next in our text. So let's read verses 33 and 34. It says, Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. This must have been quite the walk from um, Caesarea down to, uh, to Capernaum. I can visualize Jesus walking ahead of his disciples, which was common. We'll see that in chapter 10 when we look at it. Um, focus on his passion, what's about to happen. Just within a few weeks, he knows he's going to be accomplishing his mission. And I can see the disciples walking somewhat in the distance behind, grumbling, arguing, debating among themselves who would be the greatest. And it's important to note that this dispute over greatness that the disciples were having was a matter of position. It was a matter of rank. Who would rank first among the disciples? It was a matter of power. They wanted to know among themselves who would have the most power in this coming kingdom. And keep in mind that the disciples thought this kingdom was right around the corner. They thought Christ was going to go in and usher in this kingdom and that their power grab was right around the corner. In other words, there was quite a bit of the disciples jockeying for position for this coming kingdom. Do you see the picture here? Jesus focused on his passion. Two weeks away, the disciples arguing about who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. Focused on themselves and focused on power. But Jesus knew what was on their minds. In fact, Luke mentions that uh, Jesus perceived what was on their hearts. In any case, um, instead of confronting them on the road, he waits until they get to the home in Capernaum. Again, this is most likely Peter's house. And then he decides to ask them. I can see they get settled into home, the house, they're sitting down for the night. And um, Jesus asks them, So guys, what was it you were disputing on the road? Have you ever been caught with your hands in the cookie jar? (laughs) This is kind of like that moment. The disciples were undoubtedly caught off guard. I'm sure they were embarrassed. Quite possibly they were ashamed. The text here says, most importantly, they were silent. You could have heard a pin drop in the room. Most of you know that I'm the junior high principal at Stony Brook Christian School. I'm on the Ladera Ranch campus. And one of the things I enjoy doing most is hanging out with the kids at lunch and at break time. Um, one of my favorite things to do is when they're in their little cliques, you know, talking amongst themselves, I like to kind of sneak up into the little circle just to hear what they're talking about. So I'll just kind of eavesdrop a little bit. And undoubtedly, when the, the, the first time whoever's in that group sees me, the look on their face is worth a thousand words. So it's, and then right after that is, shh, it's Mr. Grimm, it's Mr. Grimm. And it's just silence. And I'll just kind of stand there, and they'll kind of stand there just awkwardly, and we're all just kind of standing there. And, um, and I'll finally ask, you know, so what are you guys talking about? Um, nothing. Uh, and usually they'll kind of walk away and scatter. Um, but they're embarrassed. You know, I think they're probably talking about who likes who. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I've, for whatever reason, they don't, they don't um, want to share with me what they've been talking about. And I think that's kind of what we have here. Um, 
just the classic moment of silence. Jesus knew what they were disputing, um, but the disciples didn't know Jesus knew what they were disputing. You know, they think they were back, and, and undoubtedly, um, there's no doubt that the disciples had a sense of embarrassment, and they're probably ashamed, especially knowing that Jesus had just taught them about his coming death. They knew their minds were in the right place and where they should be. Mark doesn't indicate that this silence ever ends. However, Matthew's account states that at some point, the disciples finally broke the silence. It says the disciples asked him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom? Another way uh, of saying that is, so teacher, which one of us will be the greatest? Um, one commentary puts it well, uh, I think. Uh, the disciples were ashamed to admit they had argued about who was the greatest among them. Matters of rank were important to the Jews, so it was natural for the disciples to be concerned about their status in the coming messianic kingdom. Perhaps the privileges given to Peter, James, and John fueled the argument, whatever its cause, it showed that the twelve did not understand or accept what Jesus' prediction, passion prediction uh, meant for them. This is well stated. Point being, that the disciples' minds, they weren't in the right place. See, their vision of reality was not part of God's plan. You know, earlier I did that object lesson with the kids, with the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I tried to illustrate the point that sometimes things don't happen in life the way we expect it to. I stress the point with them that we need to trust in God and not lean on our own understanding. Um, here we have the disciples leaning on their own understanding. Their vision was to enter into this messianic kingdom. Uh, their reality, um, or the reality is, that they would have to suffer first and experience the passion of Christ. Uh, their peanut butter and jelly sandwich was not going to turn out the way they expected it to. But Jesus knew all this to be true. Instead of rebuking and scolding his disciples for not being in the moment with him, uh, instead he takes another opportunity to teach about what true greatness in his kingdom really means and how to achieve it. And it has nothing to do with seeking power um, or rank. Let's read verse 35. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is telling his disciples, You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? You want to have the most power, then consider yourself to be the least among the disciples. Consider yourself to be a servant to one another. It's important to note here that the word for servant is the word uh, diakonos, meaning to serve or minister of one's free will. The idea is that the disciples would have to be, were to be the diakonos, or to serve one another freely and humbly out of one's own desire, without, with no selfish ambition in mind. See, this is quite opposite from uh, what they were thinking, and what common culture taught them about greatness. But Jesus gave them a simple equation. If you want to be greater first in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant um, of all, of which Christ would be the chief example. Which brings me to my second point this morning. So what's on your mind? Do you have a proper view of greatness? Do you have a proper view of greatness? Or are you like the disciples at this point in their lives who relied on their own understanding of greatness? See, they had the mind of men in view. They thought true greatness laid in power and rank and rising to the top. Friends, they were leaning on their own understanding. And leaning on your own understanding is a very dangerous place to be. It usually ends up in a mess. Kind of like that messy peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Do you want to be great? Then consider yourself the lowest and consider yourself a servant to all. See, when it comes to greatness, have the mind of God and not the mind of men. But Jesus wasn't done with his lesson with his disciples yet. He's going to further illustrate this point with a little object lesson. I like object lessons. It must be the teacher in me. 
Let's read verses 36 and 37. Then he took a little child, set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me. This same passage is also found in Matthew and Luke. However, Mark adds one phrase that the others leave out. It's a beautiful phrase. It says, And when he had taken him into his arms. What a beautiful picture of God's care and love, embracing most of the disciples probably knew this child. Some scholars even believe it was Peter's own son. In any case, we have this picture of Jesus embracing this child. But what does it mean? What does this little child have to do with anything? What is Jesus trying to teach his disciples? And what does he have to do with being great? Uh, I have to admit, as I was studying this portion of scripture, it was really difficult for me. Um, there's two main schools of thought. And depending on how you interpret it, uh, and it's in reference to who this little child represents, um, depending on how your view really has an impact on the meaning of the passage. So I want to explore these two views with you um, this morning. The first view is that the little child that Jesus is holding in his arms is symbolic or represents what the disciples are to be like, or in a larger sense, what any disciple of Christ should be like. When you read Matthew's account, um, Matthew adds to Mark's um, excerpt here, uh, the, the disciples must become like this little child that even entered the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this little child represents what the disciples are to emulate. One commentator wrote that this little child was the plenipotentiary of Christ. I knew I had to throw a big word in today's sermon. Um, and I'll admit, I had no idea what the word meant. <laughs> so I pulled out the dictionary and looked it up. Um, a plenip- someone who is a plenipotentiary is one who has full authority to act on one's behalf or on behalf of a government. Much like an ambassador has full power to represent his government, the idea here is that all the power of Christ is represented in this little child. Um, instead of having power and rank and greatness like the disciples thought they would have, they'd have to become like this little child, completely dependent um, on him and worth nothing of importance in the world's eyes, whether they were to become like servants or diaconos of all. What a beautiful picture of where Christ wants his disciples to be embraced in Christ's arms of love, humble and completely dependent on him. For that is where true power and greatness is. What a contrast from where the disciples' minds were. This brings me to my third point this morning. So what's on your mind? Do you have a mindset to live in his arms? Are you completely dependent on him? Or is your God only a God of necessity calling on him in times of need? Are you depending on your own strength and power? Or are you depending on him? Friends, Christ wants us to live in his arms. He wants us to live in his presence. What a beautiful picture this is. And a reminder for me of where I need to live and be as his disciple. The second interpretation of this passage is that the little child represents just that. A little child. Um, The child that Jesus pulled into his arms was someone the disciples all knew. Like I said earlier, probably Peter's son. Um, The point is that the disciples were to care for people, and specifically children, um, those who were considered to be the lowest, uh, the lowest stature in their culture. The Expositor's Bible uh, Commentary puts it this way in reference to these two views. It says, It seems simpler and more natural, however, to take the saying as, as meaning that true greatness entails caring about people, insignificant people like children, because Christ himself is concerned about them. When one cares about such people, one is really receiving Jesus and God himself. Miller reminds us that Jesus was one of the first 
ever to see how essentially precious any person is, particularly a young child. A concern for children was not invented by the welfare state. It goes back to the teaching of Jesus. I kind of like that, that comment. Um, another commentator uh, wrote this. Says, Even today when the world has come to value children more highly, this is done only for natural reasons and secular reasons. But Jesus regards it as an act of greatness when we receive a child on the basis of his revelation. It is not even understood by the multitude, but the devoted humility of him who performs this lovely act distinguishes him in the eyes of Jesus. It is a sample of what Jesus means by becoming first through becoming last of all, through acting as a diaconos of all. I couldn't have said these statements better, which brings me to my fourth point this morning. What's on your mind? Do you have a mind or a heart for children? I know that some of the greatest people in the kingdom are not in this auditorium right now. Over in that building, teaching our children in the word of God. They're receiving them in his name. I'm so proud of how our church is committed to children. And that's large, in large part because of your servant's heart, your diaconos heart. I guess this would be a good time to plug my Iwana program and, uh, and our church's children's ministries. And so, uh, you know, if you'd like to be part of receiving children in his name, embracing them in the name of Jesus, uh, be a part of our team. We have a wonderful core team of, of, of workers. And I want you to know that last year in Iwana, we had a waiting list. God bless us with children. And this next year, I don't want to have a waiting list. I don't want to turn any kids away, but I want to embrace them and teach them and nurture them in the Word of God and to have that servant's heart. Um, so if you'd like to consider being a part of the Team C, Monica, or myself. Anyway, back to our text. Uh, you know, looking at these two views, um, I struggle with this. And personally, I think there's truth in both views. Um, I think Jesus wants us to be... Um, as his disciples, to live like little children, to live in his arms, completely humble and dependent on him for our strength. In the same way, Jesus wants us to care for children and the lowly in stature and to be the diaconos of all. Um, I think there, there's room for both views uh, to be true. So as we look back at today's passage, we've learned that Jesus' mind was focused on his passion. In just a few weeks, he's going to be on the cross, and that's where his mind is. The day, as the Gospel of John says, it is fast approaching. We've also observed that the disciples' minds were nowhere nowhere near where it should have been. Uh, They had a mind of men and not a mind of God. And I wish I could stand here and tell you as a teacher um, that after this wonderful lesson, and even an object lesson by Jesus, that the disciples would get it. I mean, what a great lesson to learn. I wish I could stand here and tell you that the disciples had that aha moment. Um, But guess what? They didn't. Um, just like sometimes we don't. And as a teacher, sometimes we have to teach over and over and over again. So I want to spend just a few minutes illustrating two more passages, two more situations that happened in just the next few days that illustrate this point of the, the disciples' mind was still, they still had a mind of men. Turn over to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And again, this is just a few days later. It says, Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. Look what the disciples do. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, 
For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. So here we have a situation just a few days later from our text today where families are bringing children to Jesus. And notice what the disciples are doing. They're rebuking them. And notice Jesus' reaction. Jesus is what? He's greatly displeased. I know when I used to teach, especially math class, I think I'd teach the perfect lesson. I'd pull all the bells and whistles and object lessons, and I think I can illustrate the point, you know, and all the kids are nodding their heads. Yeah, I get it, Mr. Graham. Um, I say, cool, we're on the same page. The next day, when it comes time for the test, they don't have it. They don't get it. There's nothing more frustrating for a teacher when you think you've taught a good lesson, and you think they get it, and they all nod their heads and said they got it, and then when it comes time to illustrate that they get it, they don't get it. And that's what we have here. And Jesus has spent time teaching his disciples, but their minds just aren't there. Here they have a situation. A few days later where children are coming to him, and he just taught about receiving children in my name, and they're rebuking him. Yet once again, um, although the disciples miss this opportunity, Jesus takes this opportunity once again to reteach them what it means to take these little children in their arm and to care for them. Situation number two. Uh, go down to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Verses 32 to 45. And I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, but this passage is almost the exact same passage that we have today. It's the third time that Jesus is going to explain um, his passion, what's about to happen to him. Um, he's going to talk for a third time in greater detail about his coming arrest. Uh, he says, they went onto the road, up going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus um, they were amazed. Um, he took the twelve aside and explained what would happen to him. Verse 33, he says that the Son of Man will be betrayed. And I believe in this case he is referring to Judas, um, based on the tense and, and how specific it is. Um, but notice where the disciples' minds are. I want you to look down at verse 37 or 35 to 37. Um, Jesus' mind is on his passion. It's about to happen. And namely, uh, James and John, their minds are nowhere near where Jesus' is. And James and John actually asked Jesus. It says, then, James and John came and asked. I mean, right after Jesus taught these things. So, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What? Can you believe the boldness of this question? I mean, Jesus is talking about what's going to happen to him in just a moment. The disciples are, yeah, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And they go on to ask, and Jesus kind of plays along. They go on to ask to sit on the right and left-hand side of Jesus in his glory. Their minds were still on power and rank. They wanted to be number one and two um, in Jesus' kingdom. Um, obviously, they don't get it yet. Um, they don't know what they're asking. It says even the other disciples are indignant with them. I mean, how can they still be thinking about that. But once again, Jesus goes on to explain what it means. You want to be great? You've got to be a servant. Um, and instead of using the child as an object lesson, this time, uh, he uses himself as the ultimate diakonos, servant. He says in verse 45, For the Son of Man did not come to serve, or be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Friends, all we have to do is look to Christ see the ultimate example of service. All we have to do is look to him to understand what a proper mindset looks like. Christ willingly gave his life as a payment, a ransom, 
so that we might live. What a gift. I hope that none of you would leave this room this morning without having a mind properly focused on Christ. If you're here this morning for the first time, and it's the first time you're hearing of the message of Christ, um, you can believe in his message and know that you have eternal life. It's a gift. This is what Jesus came to do. And in our text today, he's about to accomplish it. He came so that he can die and rise again so that you can have life and life eternal. The Gospel of John tells us that truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. You can have this free gift right now where you're sitting just by believing this message. Maybe you're here this morning and as you've been listening, you've had that tug telling you that your mind's not been in the right place. Maybe you can relate to the disciples' mind, uh, their selfishness, their lack of perspective. Let me tell you, there's no place like right now to return to that fellowship with Christ and return to his arms of love to let him be the center of your life and your mind once again. Uh, I want to close with one final point this morning that sums up kind of the previous four points. And that is, so what's on your mind? Do you have a mind with an eternal perspective? Christ did. The disciples didn't. At least not yet. You know, I've kind of focused on the humanness of the disciples and their human nature because I think it illustrates our nature as well. We don't get it a lot. Um, But they would mature in their faith and they would get it I want you to know that in Revelation it tells us that in heaven there's going to be 12 foundations. You know what the name of those 12 foundations are? It's after the 12 apostles. Jesus tells us that the disciples are going to rule and reign and, and actually judge um, with Jesus in his kingdom. Um, they will have power, but first they would suffer. Um, I want you to, to know before you leave here today to live your life with, with eternity in mind. And that begins with having a right mindset of Christ. In his, book by, uh, in his book, Salvation, Earl Rodmacher tells it like this. He says, Right living is a direct result of right thinking. And right thinking starts by thinking correctly about Jesus Christ. So I'd like to close this service with the same way I started it, and that's with a closing object lesson, because I like object lessons. And um, I see that Brian is not here. I was going to call on him. I promised I would. And he left. So I need another volunteer. Real quick. All right, Adam, come here. There's going to be no peanut butter and jelly. Instead, I have this rope. Okay? And I'm not going to tie you up either. I want you to take this end of the rope, and I just want you to start walking. A little faster. Just keep going. Keep going. Go out the door. I think the speakers are turning up there so you can hear me. Keep going. Keep going. Go as far as you can. All right, that's good. All right. Tell them to stop, Dustin. Here I have a simple rope. It's a pretty long rope. It took me a while to untangle it. Um, but this rope this morning represents your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, just imagine that end just keeps going on forever. Your life's eternal. You have eternal life. I don't know if you can see this little piece of duct tape here on this end. Um, This little piece of duct tape represents your life here on earth right now. It's but a blink of an eye compared to eternity. And Christ wants us to have a proper mindset. He wants us to think eternally. And what we do here in this life, right here, right now, impacts 
the rest of eternity. He says, you want to be great in my kingdom? Then be the least. Be a servant. Have a diakonos heart. Um, that's what this life is all about. Um, you want to be great in my kingdom? Have a mind. Have a proper view of greatness. Um, do you have a mind of, of God this morning or a mind of men? Do you have a heart for children? Um, do, you have a, do you have a mindset, a proper mindset of eternity? And that's what Christ wants us to do. I think this passage points that out. The disciples and Jesus, um, you can come back in now. Uh, the disciples and Jesus weren't seeing eye to eye. There was a great disconnect. And I think all too often in life, um, our mind isn't there with Jesus either. Sometimes we have our own view in mind, our own will, our own passion. And just a good challenge for this morning is, is what's on your mind? Hopefully you've been able to reflect on that this morning. Will you close with me in a word of prayer? Our gracious God and Father, um, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this passage today. We saw a great disconnect between what was on your mind and that of the disciples. Lord, we thank you that you came freely, humbly, gave up your power to live a perfect life so that you can reconcile us to God. Lord, we thank you for the free gift of eternal life, that whoever believes in you has eternal life. So Lord, this morning, help our mindset. We know the disciples didn't get it yet. They were scared. They were afraid. Lord, sometimes we too are scared and afraid. Things happen in life that just we don't expect. Um, our peanut butter and jelly sandwich doesn't, isn't turning out the way we like it to. So Lord, help us to trust in you. To not lean on our own understanding, but to have a mind of God. That we're in your arms of love, embraced in you. And that you're our strength and our power each and every day. Lord, we thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.